We are uh, concluding our series, our good news series, this week in Matthew chapter 11. So if you would open to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be reading uh, verses 25 through 30. So Matthew 11, 25 to 30. And I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew eleven twenty five to 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You can be seated as we pray together. Father, Lord, of heaven and earth. We together now unite our prayers, asking that you would speak into our own hearts and to all who hear with the words of life. We need you. We acknowledge that. We need your word more than we need physical bread. So speak to us now by your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we are going to answer three questions. Our, our passage answers three questions. In verses 25 and 26, who does Jesus war against? Who does Jesus war against? Verses 25 and 26. And then verse 27, Whose side is God on? Verse 27, whose side is God on? And then verses 28 to 30, who does Jesus rescue? Who does Jesus rescue? But before we dig into these three questions, we need to understand the setting into which these words were spoken. Because I think many of us hear that beautiful invitation of Jesus, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And, and we think in warm hues. If we, if, we were to, if we were to make that invitation a painting, it would be a landscape painting. There is a, uh, a, a famous portrait artist named John Singer Sargent from the late 1800s and early 1900s. 
But late in his life, he visited the Canadian Rockies. And he began painting landscapes instead of portraits. There's one of Lake Louise with the, with the beautiful mountains and, and the pristine blue waters. It's warm. It's inviting. I think many of us think of Jesus' invitation to come and find rest like that Lake Louise painting. But John Singer Sargent painted another more famous picture around the same time. It's a life-size mural of British soldiers during World War I, and it's called Gassed. Because it depicts a string of men kind of holding on to one or and limping along together who've been subjected to mustard gas. Their eyes are bandaged, they're bleeding, they can't see. And there's a medic there on the battlefield that's, that's trying to guide these men to the medical tent. And what I'd like to show you as we look at the context into which these words are spoken is that really that painting is the better painting to capture Jesus' words here. So I, I want us to see first what, what Jesus is on about, what his mission is, what he's trying to do in, 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 this, in, this, uh, in this section of Matthew. As Matthew paints the picture, what stories is he telling? So look back to chapter 10, where really our, our section begins. He's about to send out his 12 disciples, and what are they to do? He gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and affliction. And then, in verse 8, he says to them, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Then in chapter 11, John the Baptist is trying to understand who Jesus is, what, what his real nature is. And he says in verse 5, first he says in 4, Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And then you look at verse 19, and he's, he, he talks about those who critique him, and he says, they call him a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then in chapter 12, you have him in verses 19 to 21, quoting from Isaiah 42, which Utah preached from last week. And he's saying of himself, um, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And then, you, I, think, I think then you can see the steady stream of what Jesus is doing. Right? He's coming to those who are heavy laden, who are burdened. He's coming to those 
who have been weakened by all the world thrust at them. And he's giving care to them. But even as he does this, there are people who are opposed to him, who stand against him. And so in 12 chapter 2, as, as he's doing good, it says, The Pharisees saw it and said, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They're critiquing him. And then in verse 14, it becomes even worse. It says, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So Jesus is coming, doing all these good things for the poor, the needy, the tax collectors, the sinners. And the Pharisees are like, nope, nope, stop him. He needs to be killed. And then look what they say in verse 24. They attribute what he's doing to Satan. So there is a battle taking place. There is a showdown between Jesus ushering a certain kind of kingdom, the, the kingdom promised in the Old Testament. He's the messianic figure of the Old Testament and the Pharisees who claim to speak for God standing opposed to him. It is a war scene that Matthew is painting for us. And if you think that is too strong, listen to how Jesus describes it. Again, back in chapter 10, as he's sending out the 12, what does he say to them? Verse 17, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will dra be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. And then again, he says to them in verse 21, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And then look at what he says to them in verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. And then in verse 34, he says to them, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Even in chapter 11, verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. And 1124, he's ushering or uttering woes against unrepentant cities. I tell you, he says, that it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Even in chapter 12, after these Pharisees are resisting him and opposing him, what kind of things does he say to them? Verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Or verse 34, you brood of vipers. Verse 37, by your words you'll be contemned. Verse 42, you guys are getting the idea here, right? The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. This is war language. There is a battle. Jesus is seeing what these religious leaders are doing and he is coming completely opposed to that and they are opposed to him. It is into that context that these words are spoken the painting we need to see is a war painting. So with that background, let us look at our passage. 
And the first, the first question it answers for us is, who does Jesus war against? Verses 25 and 26. Amidst this battlefield, Matthew zooms us in to Jesus praying. Now, Jesus prayed often, but in this case, he prays aloud so that everybody can hear, everybody who's around, who's been watching what's been going on. And what does he say? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He praises the Father. Praises him. That there are some people who are blind. That there are some people who cannot see that he is the Messiah. He thanks God. That there are some who have the goodness of God's kingdom hidden from them, who have access to what Jesus is doing cut off because of their spiritual blindness. Unless we miss the point, he says in verse 26, this was actually God's gracious will. Jesus is thankful that it's been hidden from them. And... He says it's the Father's gracious, gracious will that it's been hidden from them. Now, before we use this passage as kind of a jumping off point to get into our big theological debates of, about whether God wants all people to be saved, spoiler alert, he does, or whether God predestines people to hell, we have to pause and remember the context here. All that stuff I just went through, right? There's a battle going on. And in the middle of the battle, Jesus bows his knee and says, thank you, God, that these kingdom truths are hidden from certain people, these wise and understanding who are not like little children. Maybe an illustration could be helpful here. Let's say you're like Ben Ibrahim and you like to play some pickup basketball, right, Ben? Um, and you go out to basketball and there's a certain guy, we'll call him Mr. Trash, who often comes out to play basketball. And this guy's a ball hog. He's a, he's a trash talker, not in that fun, playful way, but like get in your face, be mean. And usually when he's there, everyone has a miserable time. It ends maybe in a fight and people just kind of go home early because they don't like Mr. Trash. You show up for basketball one day, pick up, all the guys are arriving, and Mr. Trash isn't there. And it's a grace that he's not there. It's good that Mr. Trash isn't there. When Jesus comes bringing in a certain kingdom, we actually should be saying, I'm glad that certain people aren't there because that's what God's saying. It's what Jesus is saying. It's good that certain people, the wise and understanding, are, are hidden. The truths are hidden from them. Because 
When we fit the profile of these wise and understanding who are not childlike, we'll spoil it for all. So who are these wise and understanding? Is it just talking about if you're smart, Jesus doesn't want you in the kingdom? Or if, or if, or if the world and, and, and life's lessons have, have given you certain wisdom, God doesn't want you in his kingdom? No. No, because we know what's going on because of the context. Here he's referring to people who, really this is all about our posture, right? People who stand upright with their chest barreled out, proud. I am wise. I am understanding. I know what God wants. I've climbed the moral ladder and I sit at the top of it. We can do this in religious ways or we can do it in non-religious ways, but it happens all the time in the world where we as men, as humans, set ourselves up as kind of, we finally cornered the market on what is the moral way to behave. And it, and it means you support the police. Oh, oh, actually, it means you don't support the police. Oh, oh, oh it means you fly this flag. No, no, this flag. No, no, this flag. You got to wear this ribbon. No, that ribbon. You have to not eat at this kind of restaurant. Don't eat this kind of food. You can't wear those clothes. We come up with our checklist of religious things or moral things or good things that good people do. And, and we, we keep heaping it on people saying, I've got it. I have it figured out. And this is how we must live. Why? Because we consider ourselves the ones who are wise and understanding of this age. Whereas the right posture, this childlike posture is down in the dirt on our hands and knees or maybe even fully prostrate. Saying, I'm unworthy. I understand how broken I am inside. How much sin contaminates me. I'm not the one who gets it. I'm the one who needs help and needs rescue. Lord Jesus, would you have mercy on me? You see those two different postures? And scriptures here teach, as well as all of history teaches, when humans take the posture, standing upright, chest barreled out, thumping and saying, I'm the wise, I'm the understanding, I have the market cornered on what's good, inevitably it leads to bad for humanity, whether it's done in the name of Christianity, some other religion, or just humanism. It's always bad. It's oppressive. It's dark. Because it, we're always trying to climb the ladder, trying to climb the ladder, and we, we can never measure up because we know inside there's something wrong. And so it's this burden that's heaped upon us. And so Jesus says, I am glad that those people have my kingdom hidden from them. Now, he's not making a definitive statement that nobody who has ever had that posture can become a Christian. It's insofar as we stay with that posture that he's glad we have it hidden from us. We know it can change. There are countless examples. There are several examples in Scripture, most notably... 
the Apostle Paul, who was certainly an upright, barrel-chest thumper, and then came to understand the level of his sin, prostrate on the ground in the dust. So, who does Jesus war against? The wise and understanding of this age. And so there is a sober question every one of us must wrestle with in light of this passage. I don't care whether we're called a Christian or not. Do we walk like this? Or are we on our face in the dirt saying, help me, Lord Jesus? Do we think I've arrived morally? I know I stand in judgment over others, over God, over everything because I've arrived and I know what's true. Or do we realize how crooked we are deep down, how much we need a Savior? It is a critical question because you are hearing right now, Jesus wanted you to hear his prayer to the Father where he thanks God that the kingdom is actually hidden from certain people. That it's God's gracious will that they are not part of his kingdom. When Jesus ushers in his kingdom, it is a war against these kind of people. He is rescuing us from that. Which leads to the second question answered by our passage. Whose side is God on? Verse 27. This is an important question because typically the good people, the people with the chest barreled out, invoke God and say, he is on our side. Those of a religious sense, God himself, those of a more humanistic, kind of the, the laws of justice and, and the march of history, but it's still kind of an appeal to higher moral ground, right? God is on our side. Of course he is. Why wouldn't he be? I know what's right and good. God must agree with me, right? And that was exactly what was going on in Jesus' day. These people who dominated Jewish culture invoked the name of God in order to subject people to their man-made system. They quoted scriptures and, and would extract certain scriptures devoid of context, not really understanding the heart of what was going on in the Old Testament, but they would use that to, to further burden people and weigh people down. God was on their side. You might know the singer Johnny Cash. You may know he always dressed in black. And you probably, if no, you know that, know he wrote a song explaining why he always dressed, dressed in black. And one of the lines in that song is he wore it for the thousands who have died believing the Lord was on their side. These people who Jesus is actually warring against often believe that God is on their side. And Jesus comes in doing all of this to relieve the agony and burden and weight that comes from living in a fallen world. And they oppose him, invoking his father's name. And he is indignant. He is flabbergasted. Imagine, if you will, that your father was, was a... Um, a respected 
godly pastor who, who, who ministered for decades in the same church. And in that church, he was loved and known for his character. So you grow up, you go away. A few decades later, you return to the church. And those who are leading the church actually never met your dad. And they're doing all sorts of things at that church. And they're claiming this is what your dad would have wanted. Pastor Joseph would have loved this. This is exactly what Pastor Joe valued and we're just carrying that on. And you know your dad. And you know he would be opposed to all this. This is not who he was. That's exactly what Jesus was feeling at this moment. Or it's something like what Jesus was feeling at that moment. They don't even know my father. I am part of the eternal trinity. I am one in essence with my father. From all of history, eternity, past, I have been one with him. And together with our one will, I have been sent into this world to be the word made flesh that makes him known. And as I come bringing and reflecting the father, these people are opposing it. And they're claiming to represent God and they don't even know him. And so Jesus says, he breaks from his prayer and he says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. The son alone knows the father and the son alone reveals the father. Martin Luther had a bunch of young theologians that he was giving lectures to. And he was giving lectures on Galatians. And in it, he said, during those lectures, he said this to them, stop speculating about the Godhead and climbing into heaven to see who or what or how God is. Hold on to this man, Jesus. He's the only God we've got. Sometimes Luther would use a little hyperbole to make his point. But I hope you see it. He's right. People can claim to have the moral high ground. They can claim to be using the scriptures. But if they are not tied to the Jesus of the scriptures and the God he reveals. They're off. God is not on their side. If we want to know our Heavenly Father, we can only know Him through the Word made flesh, the one who is the exact representation of the Father. It is His ways that reveal the way of Christ. God is on the side of Jesus. And any who oppose Him, of course, they might invoke Jesus, but I'm talking about the Jesus as revealed in the Scriptures. They're not aligned with that. They're not aligned with God. And that brings us, of course, to our third question. Verses 28 to 30. Who does Jesus rescue? Who does Jesus rescue? We saw who he battles against. 
the wise and understanding of this age. Who does he rescue? Well, it's right there in verse 28. Come to me, who? All who labor and are heavy laden. We went through all of who Jesus was targeting in the, that opening section where I was doing the context. We know who the labor and heavy laden are, right? It's those who've had that upright posture beat down or beaten out of them by this world who realize how heavy it is and how hard it is, how weak we are, how small we are, how morally bankrupt we are. It's the sick and the diseased, those hurting with a recent diagnosis. It's the people who feel the demonic spiritual oppression in their lives. It's the people who recognize themselves as sinners, the no-goods. It's the one who's the bruised reed, who's the flickering wick. That's who Jesus comes for. In the Gospels, Jesus only uses this word heavy laden one other time, and it's Luke eleven forty six. And there it's talking about how the Pharisees will heap on burdens, like follow this law, follow this law, and not bring relief to people, but bring burden to people. So maybe you've been trying to measure up, try and be good enough, and you're like, ah, but I, I know what's in my heart, I'm just not good enough. If that is you this morning, Jesus rescues for you. The invitation goes out to you. And he says to you, I will give you rest. That's what he's been doing in chapters 10 and 11 and 12. Giving rest. In this weary, broken, sin-stained world. And it's what he promises to you. So, so what kind of rest are we talking about, James? Is this just some kind of theoretical idea? A nice religious placebo that you can take and everything seems to go away? Well, Jesus says there, at the end of verse 29, it's rest for your souls. Soul rest. And I, I think of this in kind of three categories, this soul rest. The first is spiritual rest. I've been trying to measure up. I've been trying to climb that ladder. I've been trying to check every religious to-do list that I keep being told to do in order to be a good person. And I can't do it. I can't measure up. I'm exhausted. And Jesus says, you know what I came to do? I came to die so that your sins could be forgiven, so you don't have to try and measure up, so that you have my grace that allows you to measure up, not your works. It is a spiritual rest. The freshest Christian singer that's ever been out there, I think, is Keith Green. He was a singer in the 70s. And in one of his songs, he sings, My son, my son, why are you striving? You can't add one thing to what's been done to you. What's been done for you. It's rest. It's not trying to be good enough. All the fitness he requires, the hymn says, is to feel your need of him. Spiritual rest. 
And then if we're talking about soul rest, it must be psychological rest. It's the same word, suke, right? It's psychological rest. As we're, as we're burdened in this fallen world, God says, you know what? If you are in Christ, you're on the winning side. Jesus conquered death. He didn't just bear our sins on the cross. He rose up and conquered death to show that I am the ultimate one to win. And so, with all that's going on, you have hope. I don't know what heavy thing is burdening you, but there is hope because God is in control. And so he's able to work all of this that's broken in this world for good. And we'll see that in the future. How, how the present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the future weight of glory that awaits us. So that gives us a psychological rest. And then I also think in soul rest, there must be relational rest too. Think about people you know whose, whose most core relationships are whole and intact. Those kinds of people can go out and in the workplace or in the neighborhood or wherever else encounter people who are prickly, treat them badly, and they can stay steady because their core relationships are intact. There's a rest that comes from those most essential relationships being steady. Well, for all humans, our most core relationship is the one with our Creator, our Heavenly Father. That was a relationship that was not intact because our sin is treason against Him and it creates a chasm there. But when Jesus comes, He bridges that. By taking our sins so that we can be reconciled to the Father so that our most fundamental relationship, our foundational relationship is whole. And that brings a rest in our lives. I'm sure I haven't encompassed all of what it means to know true soul rest, but I just want you to know this is real. This is what Jesus did. And so if we want that rest, what do we need to do? Well, Jesus says, come. He says, take my yoke. And he says, learn from me. Those are the three things he says. We're in the battlefield. Jesus comes into the mess, bringing rescue. And he says, all you need to do is hitch yourself to me. I got my yoke right here. Just come, take my yoke. Follow me wherever I'm going. Learn from me. That's, that's, what it, that's what it takes. Say, okay, Jesus, I need rescue. I'm laying down in the dirt. I know my need. I see what you are and what, rep you, what you represent. God is on your side. I'm aligned with, I'm, a, I'm joining you. Wherever you go, that's where I'm going. I want to learn from you. If you want to succeed in athletics... Find somebody who is really big, really strong, really fast, pretty bad, really driven, and you'll find athletic success. If you want to find rest for your soul, find someone who is a rescuer, but who is gentle and lowly who will not crush a bruised reed, 
or snuff out a flickering wick and yoke yourself to him and you'll find rest for your souls. If you are a Christian, the more we tie ourselves to Jesus and take, let him take us where he goes, the more we learn from him, the more we'll know that rest. If you are here this morning and you have not done that, the invitation goes out to you. Come. Take Jesus' yoke. Compared to what this world offers, it is a, it is a light and easy yoke. Find him. I will tell you, from the bottom of my heart, it's true. It's true. The burdens of my life, I'm not trying to say, man, I've experienced what you've experienced, and my burdens are heavier than your burdens, and therefore I can speak with authority. Probably if you knew my burdens, they'd probably heavier than you'd think they'd be. But I'm not trying to compare. I just want you to know this weary, burdening world and my own fallen flesh, it weakens me. But when I look to Jesus, I know that God loves me. The creator of the world who holds it all in his hand is on my side and he cares for me and he's working good in me. He's working good through me because of Jesus and through Jesus. And so that is a refuge for me. When I'm worn down and I don't know where to turn, I can turn to him and he provides rest for my soul because I know he's made me right because his spirit is there guiding me. And as I follow him and follow his ways as revealed in scripture, he brings rest. It is true. But I will tell you, it's not rest like sitting at Lake Louise looking over a beautiful landscape. It is rest like having been mustard gassed, having my eyes bandaged and barely able to walk, and then Jesus coming in and saying, come, I know where the medic is. Find that kind of rest. And so I invite you to know Jesus and find rest for your soul. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for Jesus who came into this world so we know what your kingdom's like, not the man-made religious systems, but your kingdom. So that we who feel the weight of our own brokenness and sin and the weight of a fallen world with all its disease and demons and sickness and affliction can know true and lasting rest, both in this life and in the age to come. God, may everyone who hears this know that rest. May none of us be the ones who you wage war against. In Jesus' name, amen.